Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Shahidi, and this is the Evoke Master Speaker Series podcast, where we host open-ended conversations with business leaders and world-class investors who share stories, lessons learned, and market insights. Thank you for joining me on this journey, and please feel free to visit our website at evokeadvisors.com to see videos of these podcasts and to learn more about our firm. Today, we have an intriguing conversation with media magnate, John Malone. The cable cowboy became president of TCI at the young age of 29, transforming it into the biggest cable company in the US, and he currently serves as chairman and controlling shareholder of Liberty Media. John has been a leader within his industry for over 50 years and shares his unique perspectives on the future of media, communications, and entertainment. As the largest private landowner in the United States, John also provides insights into real estate investing. Finally, we will cover two of John's favorite topics, the U.S. economy and education. I hope you enjoy the discussion. John, thank you for being a valued client for many years and for taking the the time to share your insights with us today. Sure. Uh, Thanks for being here. you obviously are very knowledgeable about a wide range of things, but today I'd like to cover four broad topics, uh, which I know you're very passionate about uh, in this order, media, real estate, uh, the economy, and education. How does that sound? That's fine. Okay, great. Uh, let, let's, let's start with media. Uh, you've obviously been unbelievably successful in the industry from an early age. Uh, you were president of TCI at the young age of 29, just six years out of school. Uh, TCI, for those who aren't familiar, was the largest U.S. cable operator at one point. Uh, why, don't you, why don't we start with what drew you to this industry? Well, I think I started uh, in in electronics, such as they were, and and engineering, because my dad was an engineer and and uh, worked at GE uh, on developing the first television sets before the the war, and then moved on to radar. So it was natural. I played with uh, electronics as a kid and the barn out back. And um, I went through double E and, and uh, economics at Yale as an undergrad. And uh, when I graduated, uh, uh, the best place, the best offer I got was Bell Labs. And uh, they, uh, they would pay for everything if I would go study what they wanted, which was uh, at the time called operations research, which was sort of an early form of computer science, uh, business modeling, I guess you would call it. Uh, and, uh, and so everything just sort of rolled from there. I, at Bell Labs, uh, uh, this was 58 years ago, my first summer there, I worked on a, a project called Picture Phone the effort to uh, to get video through copper wires. Well, obviously the technology wasn't ripe. Uh, so, uh, you know, after doing some work at Bell Labs and, and trying to model the Bell system uh, to fight with the FCC uh, at a very young age, uh, I got kind of bored at AT&T and I, I uh, uh, joined McKinsey and Company. And so for about three years, I was an associate at, at McKinsey on, since I had a technical background, PhD and so on, they uh, thought it was appropriate for me to go and consult with 
tech companies. So people like IBM and and ATT and Bell Canada. I did one job. Uh, my probably longest project was the restructuring of General Electric, uh, which kind of ended up with Jack Welsh, you know, being king. Anyway, uh, uh, one of my jobs was uh, a General Instruments company. They had bought a company that wasn't living up to the performance they expected. And it was called Gerald Electronics. Gerald Electronics was... Uh, amongst other things, pretty big into cable TV, such as it was then. Small, small company, small penetration of the market. But uh, Gerald Electronics was involved in operating a few cable systems, but mostly the technology of development of, uh, of the cable industry, uh, transporting, you know, analog signals. Uh, and delivering television uh, that way. And uh, so I spent a couple of years there. I, I did, I think a good enough job to get investigated by the antitrust division of justice department. <laughs> and, uh, and I moved on then, uh, one of my principal clients at the time was TCI, um, very small and somewhat financially way over levered company. Uh, but I wanted to move the family uh, out of New York Metro. So I turned down a job at Warner doing the same thing and a, and a job at Teleprompter, uh, both of which were New York centric. And I went to Colorado and joined uh, TCI, Bob Magnus. Uh, I was enthusiastic. I bought stock at about, my wife reminds me about 13 bucks a share and it was 78 cents within a year. Uh, that would have been 1972, and you know Watergate and the whole the whole market uh, implosion, especially in in our industry. Um, so everything that I learned uh, from that point forward was kind of self-taught. You know how to deal with banks and stay out of bankruptcy, how to do M&A by understanding what the other guy wants how to minimize tax leakage um, and et cetera. And uh, that led to, uh, uh, once we got our feet under us, which took six years to basically get any financial flexibility in that company, we started uh, uh, an M&A roll up going after scale economics in the cable TV business. Uh, entirely domestic at that time. And uh, we got to be the biggest uh, company in the cable business that way, doing about uh, an acquisition a week. So we were really, it was a huge roll up. And with scale economics, you know, after a while it became clear that uh, the media programming was gonna be an important driver of the business and we started to uh, have market power in that space and so we started to invest in content businesses and uh, I think at the peak we were up to 28 or 29 different investments that typically ranged from 20 percent ownership to 50 percent ownership we never pretended to have any uh, creative skills 
we always wanted somebody else to have the creative skills, but we could provide, you know, the, uh, the driving force, the distribution, the financial support and so on. So we built a big portfolio of media investments that way. Um, we also built a, a pretty good uh, uh, set of technology investments. So that was kind of the history of how we got into it, how I got into the media business. It was really because there were huge synergies between being a big cable operator and then adding a satellite component to that uh, and driving uh, programming. Um, amongst the programming, of course, were things like news. So, uh, participating in creating uh, things like CNN or Fox News or McNeil Air or CNBC. I think we had an involvement in virtually every cable news uh, uh, development of one kind or another. Um, black entertainment, television, discovery, communications, uh, Telemundo, Hispanic, uh, these were all things. QVC, the home shopping business, and go on and on. I mean, there were a lot of them, right? And it was like shooting, you know, fish in a barrel because we had such leverage over the marketplace. Uh, it, was, it was very difficult for a new programming service to succeed without our involvement. And, uh, and it was a back scratch kind of world at that point. So that's how I, how I got into the media business. And, you know, it evolved. I think you'd say it evolved. And, you know, you get a phone call, Ted Turner went out and he bought MGM and then Milken financed him. And then Ted couldn't pay the interest and he needed a rescue. And so we raised a bunch of capital and, and rescued Ted Turner and then Turner Broadcasting merged into Time Warner and we became one of the largest shareholders of Time Warner, et cetera. <laughs> yeah, you, you've seen so many changes since the 1960s in the industry. How do you, how do you see the industry evolving, let's say over the next uh, 20 years or so? Well, I think the technology drove us and our involvement with with media, and I think now the technology moved on to high-speed internet, which we certainly still participate in on the connectivity side in a major way. Uh, but that change technology has allowed for uh, media to be random access, on-demand, random access, direct consumer, uh, all kinds of variants of that. But it's all driven by a change in technology. And, uh, uh, you know, people uh, want social networks. They, they want connectivity. And so at the core of this for the last, you know, since picture phone, this has all been about connectivity. And, uh, you know, we find ourselves now, um, you know, I got out of the U.S. connectivity business when we sold our company to AT&T. And that was in basically the year 99 or 2000. Um, and I had a non-compete, so I couldn't get back into it in the U.S. But I did, I did build it up outside the U.S., in Europe and Japan, 
Australia, Latin America. Uh, and then uh, I, because I had this non-compete in the cable business, I was, I was able uh, to get into the satellite business. So I moved into satellite distribution of, of these uh, media properties uh, with DirecTV, which we got control of and then grew. Now the, the evolution is, is, is still ongoing. You have scale economics still driving the entire thing, whether it's Facebook or there's a network effect and there's a scale effect. And if you put those two together, it becomes very, very powerful. And I think it's going to give the antitrust, the traditional antitrust uh, uh, regulators uh, quite a hard time to figure this one out. But they will eventually. Eventually, this is going to get regulated. But at the moment, those two forces, scale and network effect, are driving toward monopoly. And that's a very interesting phenomenon, monopoly profits, monopoly positioning uh, on the back of this internet technology. Yeah, at the same time, the consumer experience should improve. So there's benefits on that side as well. The consumer benefits are enormous. I mean, uh, the flexibility, the quality, the affordability, you know, if you stay away from sports, uh, the affordability is, is amazing. And so I think that's why it's so popular. You know, whether it's television shopping, which we had QVC, but uh, Bezos had Amazon, right? And he's been able to build a gigantic business. Uh, and these businesses are all trying to go global because the U.S. is not enough scale to compete with guys who do go global. So now we're seeing the phenomenon of a Netflix, which has successfully gone global, has massive numbers, wonderful scale economics, and wonderful network effect. And now Disney, Iger pushed everything aside and said, we got to do that. And he's now chasing after Netflix when it comes to scripted content distribution. Uh, and whether or not there'll be a third or fourth or fifth or a bunch of niches, so who's going to control that platform? Those, uh, those are evolving, uh, evolving issues. And of course, it's also dramatically affect the advertising world. Um, the ability to tell an advertiser who's watching and, and for how long and, and showed real interest uh, has created enormous uh, revenue streams for Google and for... Uh, for Facebook. So, you know, it has totally, the technology has really reshaped uh, the media industry. And uh, you get old media and new media and old media trying to make a transition to new media. And, and frankly, uh, uh, not very many will make it across the valley of death. That's right. Uh, so, so John, you've been a successful business leader for 50 plus years. How would you describe your core um, business principles? What, what, you know, the, the, the driving forces behind your success? Well, uh, yeah, I, I guess primarily from a structural point of view, uh, it goes back to when I was with McKinsey and we decided that GE was, was very poorly run structurally very good people but very poorly structured and uh 
and you had uh, an illogical organizational structure. So I primarily believe that a business should be defined around who it competes with, and it should be pretty complete. In other words, it should have its own management and its own financial structure and so on. So, so I probably was the first guy to, uh, to just adopt the idea of spinning things off as soon as they, they got the viable and could have those characteristics, uh, as opposed to creating a conglomerate of ownership. And that's why, you know, at this point, we have so many uh, companies that we've spun off uh, so kind of the opposite of a conglomerate, uh, you know, as soon as, as soon as we can generate the synergies and it makes sense for a business to not need the umbilical cord, we tend to want it to be separate. And that also doing that in a tax efficient way, um, has been, you know, one of the, I, I'd say uniquenesses. In, in my style compared to other corporations. Um, I'm a delegator. Uh, you know, I, I you find a really good CEO to run a business and then you, you cheer them on and you support them every way you can and you avoid micromanaging. Uh, uh, that's a principle of mine. Um, and I'm financially very conservative. So whereas I use leverage heavily uh, in order to defer taxes or, or to, to boost uh, returns, uh, I'm pretty conservative on the, on the ultimate structure. So I, I have spent my whole career probably buying things that got in trouble as opposed to selling things that I got into trouble. Uh, other than that, uh, you know, I, I like stability. But if you look across the CEOs that, that work today for the companies that I'm still regarded as a control shareholder of, there's all kinds of different styles um, from very financially oriented to very operationally oriented. Uh, and it all works as long as they're capable of building a team around them that does the parts that they don't do. So I think that's, that's generally my, my philosophy. Um, and, you know, I've had to evolve from being a, a CEO to being just an investor and a director. It's not as much fun, but it does represent better financial diversification. Well, you only have so much time. So as you, as you zoom out from these businesses, you need, you know, uh, uh, competent people working beneath you that you can direct and you're kind of looking at the big picture. Well, you get old. You don't have <laughs> that, the that too. And when you, when you find yourself asking your 29 year old granddaughter to explain, uh, you know, technology or social networking to you, you know, you know, you become a little arcane, but uh, so there's those issues as well. How do you keep up? Can you hire executives who are young enough to understand what's really going on and what's really driving, uh, driving a lot of this uh, uh, customer behavior, consumer behavior? 
so there's that element of it. Um, it. You know, the business went from a pretty simple uh, business as cable TV, which was uh, like a local monopoly franchised and regulated, to this uh, internet connectivity business that that uh, now the biggest chunk of it that I'm involved with would be Charter. We're the largest shareholder there. And, and uh, you know, we have Liberty Global and Liberty Latin America that are all connectivity businesses primarily. But they're also adding wireless to their wired uh, capabilities. Okay. Well, wh- why don't we move to real estate? Uh, I know <laughs> you're very passionate about that, that field. You're, by many accounts, the largest private landowner in the U.S., uh, so what, what, what would you say is the, <clears throat> the attributes of land in particular that has uh, attracted you to that space? Well, first of all, I'm a preservationist. So the idea of owning and keeping uh, tracts of land uh, in good shape, <laughs> let's call it, is important, uh, an important value to me. You know, just personally, I love to be out on the land, whether it's on a ATV, a horse, or a truck. I mean, it's just, it's freedom. It represents really uh, a level of, of independence and freedom and self-sufficiency that, uh, that I grew up respecting as, as characteristics. It's similar to being out on the water. I mean, you're, you have a, a sense of freedom or independence. Uh, so I love that aspect of it. Financially, you know, they always say God isn't going to make any more of it. And to which you'd say, if you're talking about New Mexico, you'd say, thank God. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but ranches, uh, you know, are not, you don't go into ranching if your motivation is, is generating, creating wealth. Uh, unless you get lucky and there's an oil deposit or, or some other non-agricultural attribute. It's more just a love of the land and, and a, uh, wanting to preserve the land. Uh, the same thing is true in my forestry business. So ranching and forestry. Forestry is a little more economic than, uh, than ranching. Uh, you can actually uh, generate cash flow from properly run forestry. And, and uh, if you leverage it properly and if you're really patient, it should be an appreciating asset. Um, and and uncorrelated, this, uncorrelated as well, right? Trees grow regardless of how the economy is doing. It's real diversification and it's the only retail business where your inventory actually goes up in value if you don't sell it. So yeah. you, have, you can time manage also, but you're in a long cycle asset. I mean, most of my property you know, the, the forest will replace itself in 120 years. So this isn't really a short-term uh, uh, asset. And then, you know, we have a substantial uh, involvement in farming as well. And uh, that is more cyclical. Once again, another diversification. Uh, and... Uh, just a, a way to spread yourself out on the ice, so to speak, uh, in an asset. I always point out to my, my fellows, the young guys that sort of work in my family office, that the, my wife and I bought our first car brand new in 1963 for 1600 bucks. 
And that same car today would probably cost 45 grand. So the biggest thing you got to worry about is the devaluation of the paper currency that you uh, that you're looking at, and and you know it accelerates and decelerates, but de- uh, devaluation, systematic devaluation, uh, has been my lifetime experience. And uh, you know I don't know how many of the guys on this call are old enough to remember uh, you know at the end of Jimmy Carter and and Paul Volcker coming in and. You know, prime rate is is 18 to 20%. You can't sign a fixed contract with anybody for anything because they don't know what the forward costs are going to be. It was a mess. Uh, you know, that's my biggest, my biggest concern over the long run, as well as today, because when the government decides that the secret of life is printing money, which apparently central banks have now decided, um, when I look at it, I think it's just a... a, a an easy alternative for wealth distribution. Um, you know, print money, throw it out the helicopter window, and everybody's going to be happy, and the politicians stay in power for a while. But somehow or other, whether it's Zimbabwe or Venezuela or the Weimar Republic, it doesn't end well. So I, I think my primary concern is to be invested and have my companies invested in businesses that can that can have enough pricing power and enough positioning that they can do okay in a devaluing inflationary kind of environment. Yeah, it's really interesting because inflation's been falling since the 70s and 80s and and central bankers have have been intent on minimizing the risk of inflation because of the 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 challenges faced in that period. And now it looks like the, the shift is occurring where the mindset is more about it's not about inflation we're worried about, it's deflation. We don't want to be Japan. We don't want to be uh, Europe the last decade. And now the push is let's create inflation. And you just wonder if that can get out of hand. And, and you know, with all this printing of money and interest rates at zero and all this push, um, I'm just curious how you think about that in terms of real estate as a, as a, you know, a real asset, something that you can touch that's not a financial asset. All I know is that that. There may have been no inflation over the last 20 years, according to the government, but somewhere or other, my, my land outside of Denver seems to be more valuable than it was when I bought it. You know, yeah. gee, imagine that. No inflation, and yet everything seems to cost more. How could that be, right? Have you looked at college tuitions lately? It seems like, uh, you know, especially for the, for the blue collar guy, yeah, he hasn't seen much inflation in his income, <laughs> right? Yeah. I've always wondered what went wrong. You know, when I graduated from, from school with an with a engineering degree, I could count on making enough money to get married, own a house, have a wife who didn't have to work, who could take care of the kids. What happened? You know, you can't do that anymore. It doesn't, doesn't happen anymore. So somehow or other, the efficiency of our society and the definition of the terms we use has gotten a little screwed up, to tell you the truth. So, you know, yeah, I, I think there's some things we haven't seen much uh, inflation in, you know, farm commodities, things that you can take advantage of cheaper labor in China or higher productivity. 
uh, tends to drive down uh, the cost of those items. And so then it depends on what mix of, of goods you're talking about, whether you have experienced inflation or not. But uh, it just seems to me right now with the, the kind of deficits that the government is currently running and the political popularity with both sides of the aisle of offering to send out $2,000 checks to, to everybody other than Jeff Bezos, uh, you know, it seems to me they've gotten carried away with, uh, with the ability to effectively distribute wealth, uh, redistribute wealth by printing money. Yeah, that, Which, that takes... I, I just believe this is a dangerous uh, uh, path that they're on. Yeah, I mean, that, that takes us to our economic discussion, which is, if you just zoom out for a second, we had the big crisis in 2008, 2009. And since then, interest rates have been at or near zero for now 13 years. We've printed trillions of dollars. Um, and the goal is to avoid that deflationary, you know, depressionary type of outcome. And, and so I'm just curious, uh, you've talked about it a little bit, but what, it, what is your sense of, of how the, this ends? I mean, you, you, you're printing and, and you know, we, we printed out of the 1930s, right? And, and so you just wonder, how, how is this going to play out? I'm, I'm just curious for your, for your thoughts. Well, actually, we didn't print out of the 1930s. We, we got involved in a war that created full that employment. Yeah. And we sold a lot of war goods to England just before that. They had gold and we, we could ship them stuff. So I have a different view of, of that whole era. How does this end? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I, I think that, that cheap money is a huge benefit to people who have good credit. So the wealthier you are, the wealthier you're going to get, uh, you know, and without taking undue risk, if you can borrow money at practically zero and invested in things that create value, you know, you can own more. Uh, prices of those things will go up because there's more demand. I mean, I just look at real estate here in South Florida with all these New Yorkers moving down here, it's just going nuts. So a lot of money chasing a limited supply of, of valued goods, you know, you can call it inflation. It's just driving up the, the paper value of those goods and making them inaccessible to people who don't have good credit. So to me, it creates a social and cultural divide that, that is really worrisome. Um, you know, if you can borrow money at zero interest and, and your credit's good enough, you can drive around a nice car. If, if you can't, if you, if you can't even have a bank account, you live hand to mouth and you're renting the tires on your truck, uh, you're stuck, you know? And so I'm, I'm very concerned about, about the effect. And, and frankly, the, one of the nice things about the last four years was for a period of time, we saw a little bit of reindustrialization of America. We saw demand for labor strong enough to drive up uh, low-end wage rates. Uh, and, uh, and I thought we were on a good path toward solving a lot of uh, social issues, if that could continue. You know, when the bidding, when you have to bid for the landscaper, 
you know, uh, you know that we're going in the right direction relative to social justice issues, if you want to call them that. So how is it going to end? I think it just ends, you know, first of all, uh, the U.S. cannot default on its debt. We own the printing press. Our debt is denominated in dollars. So, you know, we just print more dollars. We just devalue the currency. Uh, and as we look like we're going to do that, then who is going to want to buy, who in the private world or the international world is going to own this paper if they figure you're just going to keep printing it? Uh, at some point, the demand for, uh, for government treasury-issued securities is going to dry up and just be the Fed, the only one willing you know, to buy these, this paper. Uh, and that's a shame. Uh, you know, we went through a long period that kind of ended, you know, with, uh, with Bill Clinton, during which we, we had damn near a balanced budget. Things were good in America. Uh, yeah. since, since 2000, 9-11, um, culminating in an overstimulated housing market that blew up in their face and destroyed a lot of, a lot of wealth. Uh, these efforts to manipulate the economy with, with uh, cheap interest or easy credit don't seem to end well. Uh, so, you know, I don't really know the answer other, other than that I think devaluation of the currency or, or you could call it inflation, uh, I think is, is likely to be the outcome of it. And uh, whether or not we'll see a return to high interest rates, which would definitely cause the, uh, the equity markets to recede, uh, I don't know, because I don't know that, that the governmental structure can afford that. I mean, yeah. this, is, this is a severe cocaine addiction that our federal government and our Congress has. And I don't see, I don't see how they give it up. Yeah, I mean, as a, as a country, you're supposed to, you know, run a surplus during the good times, so you save for a rainy day, and then you run a deficit, you know, when you have that rainy day, and you go back and forth. And as you mentioned, we've, you know, for the last forty years or so, we've had a deficit most of the time, and we had a small period of a surplus, and and so we've accumulated all this debt as a country, you know, in, in individuals, businesses, uh, the, the government as a whole, and this debt is really high. Yeah, as a corporate guy, I tend to look at it and say, if, you're, if your growth rate, if your growth of leverage and your growth rate are roughly the same, right? You're not increasing the leverage. You're, you're sort of neutral, right? Yeah. And like a lot of these EU uh, treaties that they had with countries like Greece, well, you know, it's okay for you to run a deficit, but it can't exceed your, your theoretical growth rate, right? Uh, and so you're not getting you're not getting worse, I guess, as to what you're not getting over levered. Uh, and uh, and that's sort of the theory. The Keynesian theory, of course, is what you what you referred to is is you save in good times and you spend in, in weak times. No government seemed to be able to follow that discipline. But, uh, you know, I, I do think that that the ability to print money and spend it is addictive. 
Uh, I'm not sure where uh, where the world is going with these these tax the rich theories. It makes I know it makes our family very uncomfortable to feel like we're we have a target on our back, you know. Uh, that some, there's something wrong with having been successful in this country now. And, uh, and I, hate, I hate to see it going that way, but that seems to be the, the mood at the moment anyway. Um, so, uh, you know, how does it end? Uh, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I, I think uh, you could look at Venezuela. We could go down that path. You know, where politicians just promise a lot more than the society can deliver and try and uh, and get there by printing money, you know, by borrowing it and spending it. And uh, and uh, instead of focusing on productivity and and uh, staying competitive in a world marketplace, uh, teaching and training your people to. Uh, to really be creative and, and productive, you basically allow a substantial part of the population to become reliant on the government. And, uh, you know, as that, as that destroys motivation, um, I can remember in the last days of, uh, of the Soviet Union being in Russia, uh, driving around, with Ted Turner and, and looking at their media setup with the head of uh, Soviet radio and television. And, uh, you know, we would ask him questions like, uh, you know, is it true that you get paid the same as your driver? And he would smile and he'd say, yes, that is true. He says, but my driver doesn't have a driver. <laughs> yeah. you know. So the elite always figure out a way to differentiate themselves. Um, but a society that, that doesn't understand human nature and the drives uh, of, of uh, doing better in the future for yourself and your family, uh, the bonds of family, the motivations of human beings that doesn't create a culture of motivation, uh, I think fails eventually. And that's the that's the longer term concern. Uh, I would point to the Chinese system where once they allowed private property, their their whole economy took off. You know, they, it wasn't so much the people at the top making good or bad decisions; it was the fact that the individual Chinaman uh, could could create and own assets. And keep them and profit from them, and boy, that sure turned that that culture around in spades. Look, look how they're doing, doing now. You know, I mean, they're you can you can certainly envy their their growth rates and and the way that they pulled their whole population uh, into middle class. It, it's just incredible. So, what did that? What was the motivation, you know, that really made the difference? For me, it's people wanting to do better for themselves. And once a society loses sight of that, of what motivates people, um, I, I, I fear for the long term.
Yeah. And, and you mentioned owning the printing presses. Um, that's a privilege that is earned over time and it can be lost. And yeah, you abuse it. Faster for America to cease to be the world's currency. But that could easily happen. You could end up at least with a basket. I'm sure the Russians and the Chinese would love to have them. And the, and the Euro, they, they'd love to be part of a, a global basket approach. Uh, and maybe Bitcoin will replace yeah, everything. Or, or gold. Or gold. Well, back to the gold standard, I don't know. I think Rand Paul is, uh, you know, Ron Paul was never able to quite sell it. So, but there is a certain merit in a fixed, uh, um, a fixed star, a North Star, something that politicians can't play games with. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know you, you've, you've spent a lot of time studying a, uh, there's, there's a lot of talk about a wealth tax and you know, obviously there's this income and, and wealth divide that's growing. Uh, I'm just curious what your, what your uh, thoughts are about that whole idea and, and whether it's constitutional, is it doable? Is it? Is well, it when it first came up about six years ago, five, six years ago with Elizabeth Warren and Bernie, uh, I had an outside law firm write an opinion for me, give me their opinion as to whether it's constitutional. Because I've, I've read that 16th Amendment a hundred times, and I can't see where wealth tax could be constitutional. Otherwise, why did they need the 16th Amendment? Uh, which specifically says income, okay? Permits an income tax that doesn't have to be proportional. So we know we're stuck with an income tax. Thank you, Woodrow Wilson. but. Uh, you know, are we going to have a wealth tax? Uh, some states actually in their state constitutions have tried wealth taxes. Florida had one. Um, and uh, generally speaking, it, it hasn't led to results that, that they were hoping it would. Um, Europe, uh, Sweden had a wealth tax for a while. Financial instruments primarily. Sw Switzerland still does have. Uh, a wealth tax on financial instruments, a small one. Um, so, A, there's the question of constitutionality. B, there's the question of, can they get it through the Senate? Okay. Um, I guess C, there's the question of whether or not the filibuster will be uh, protected, preserved, or whether it'll go away, because even if it's unconstitutional, if you can pack the Supreme Court, you can get any kind of outcome you want and you can just kiss the Constitution goodbye. So, so then there's the whole issue of, of how you would define it and how you would collect uh, appraisal. Are you going to subject the whole country to appraisal, periodic appraisals? Uh, is it, are there going to be exemptions? Are you going to see capital flight? Um, there's all those practical questions that you'd have to think about. And of course, somebody in my position, I'm old enough now that we're going to give away virtually all our wealth anyway. So the question is, are we going to give it away sooner than we had planned? Because <laughs> we're sure as hell not going to give it to the government. <laughs> so, you know, Philanthropy uh, will be accelerated, in my opinion, and uh, 
especially for if you know i'm almost 80 so i don't have that many more years to fund no matter what my lifestyle is <laughs> but uh uh you know i think that the practicality of it it would be pretty disruptive on the other hand politically it's a winner if you can say well there's only 760 families in america that would actually be affected you know out of 165 million households, uh, uh, we're only going to ask 760 families to pay their fair share, you know. I mean, it's, it's politically, unfortunately, it's a winner. Like any uh, political effort to divide and conquer. Uh, so who knows where the, where the public is on it. But, you know, I always believed that, that we had a constitution and we had a constitutional republic. And if you want to change the rules of the game, it took a supermajority. <laughs> it wasn't a simple 50.1% uh, vote. So, so hope springs eternal that, uh, that we'll come up with a better solution. But there's no question we have massive uh, uh, wealth and income inequity in this country. Uh, and the government policies, frankly, in my opinion, have made it worse, not better. Yeah. Yeah. And if you if you think about that, we're talking about money printing, wealth, you know, wealth uh, divide, uh, you know, interest rates at zero. Uh, is, is your sense that the great American empire is on the decline? I would, how, how do you think about that? Uh, I would say this, unless there's political upheaval in China, I don't see how their momentum uh, slows down. So in relative terms, I see no matter what America does with our 330 million people or however many we got, I don't see how we can be as big an economic power long-term uh, as China. That doesn't mean, you know, I, look, China, uh, France hasn't won a war since Napoleon, but life in France is pretty good, okay? So <laughs> it's not a doomsday scenario that, that some other country on the planet with five times as many people as you have you know, is, is bigger economically than you are collectively. I mean, that's not, what, there's nothing bad about that per se. So, you know, I would differentiate our two country strategies that America's strategy has been to have uh, armies all over the world and to help our friends by selling them guns. The Chinese have taken a much more long-term financial approach. They don't have troops anywhere, okay, except in China, uh, but, they, they are the world's banker at this point, the third world's banker. So they'll go in and, and finance a dam or a, or a road or a mine or a port and, uh, or a, a telecommunication system. And, and they use that to gain influence and relationships. And, you know, if it's done in, in, in a lot of places, they've done it in a way that's a win-win. It's a good long-term investment for China and their relationships with perhaps an exporting 
natural resource exporting country and, and uh, it helps China. So, so the Chinese have been strategic. Now they've also cheated and stolen, <laughs> you know, they've done anything that seems logical, uh, but they've been, it's been a well-engineered strategy that you can complain about the morality of some of, some of their uh, elements of their strategy, but it's been pretty effective. And, you know, I don't see, I don't see that momentum or that, that uh, direction uh, slowing down. Uh, now, if America really uh, does a good job of, first of all, America's never had a, an industrial policy that we admitted to. I mean, every time you pass a tax law, you've got an industrial policy, but they don't ever admit that, you know, we drove the, the steel industry out of America with a 50-year amortization schedule on steel plants, right? Against seven in South Korea, seven years. So just look at the return on capital and, and how the tax system uh, interacts with, with the long-term business decisions. And Trump understood that to some degree, and some of the policies he was trying to put in reflected that, that understanding. So, you know, my problem is I, I think America is a great country. It's been a wonderful country to grow up in, uh, the finest place on the planet still. But I don't see the kind of leadership uh, that, that is, uh, is thinking about the long term about the position of this country long-term and, and, and legitimate ways to, to eliminate the social problems, uh, the wealth gap and so on, uh, and take it seriously. We have this every two year in Washington power grab in which, you know, there are, it's not marked key of Queensbury rules. <laughs> Anything goes, you know, accuse the other guy of, of Anything you can think of, it's all about getting power and promise whatever you got to do to get elected. So I think we have a, a system that is our own worst enemy in terms of developing a national strategy to actually deal with the issues that we face. And it's a, it's a shame. It's, it's, it's short term and, and politicized as opposed to, you know, what's good for, for the whole uh, Society. So I, I hate to say I hate to get political on you. It looks to me like America is basically now run by two gangs, and those two gangs, uh, you know, decide everything. And and the number one important thing, if you want to be a member of the gang, is loyalty to the gang. Right? It's not being an independent thinker. It's not. It's not having an open debate. It's, it's uh, you're with us or you're against us. And we become so polarized. There is no neutral territory anymore. You know, uh, Susan Collins doesn't have a chance as a, as a sort of a moderate. You know, it's just, it's just uh, too polarized and, and, and too much of a power struggle uh, and very little attention given to uh, to solving the country's, you know, long-term issues. Well, well, John, for our final uh, ten minutes, uh, let's let's shift to education, which might be part of the solution here long-term. You're obviously very passionate about education. Look, 
for me, education was the whole thing growing up. Uh, I was a work scholarship kid. Uh, you know, my tuition at the prep school, I managed to get into and get out of a blue collar kind of community. Um, uh, 700 bucks a year was the tuition and 60% of it was the work scholarship, right? The folks had to come up with 40, 40%, uh, 280 bucks, which was a lot more money then than it is now. But uh, it made all the difference for me. And uh, when I started to have a little success, the first thing I wanted to do is go back and sort of do a little payback. And so I was able to, to do some things at, at the prep school I had gone to. Uh, I was able then to set up a foundation and start uh, sponsoring the best kid who couldn't afford to go to the best school kind of a thing. We, uh, we underwrote uh, Stanford University's uh, program for gifted youth and uh, distance learning. Uh, now you can get a high school diploma from Stanford uh, online and it's, it's tough. It's a tough program. Uh, so to me, education is the way out. And I look at, I've been involved now for almost, well, I guess at least 10 years in a public charter school effort in, in and around Denver. And the results are just incredible. I mean, you got 80, 85% minority kids, a hundred percent of them are being admitted to four-year colleges. Uh, 92% of them are there a year later. 57% of them are in STEM programs in the colleges they go into. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's extremely doable to make education for a lot of people who are otherwise economically trapped the way up, the way out, the way to the American middle-class dream. Um, but, you know, it's a struggle. You have teachers unions that uh, are a monopoly and are trying to preserve their monopoly and discourage anything that looks like competition in education. And it's sad that that's the case. And we have universities now that seem to be much more interested in, in uh, social and political uh, uh, training than they are in, in basic how to make things work training. So this cancel culture, the attacks on the, on the First Amendment, I think are very scary. And they're coming out of the elitists in the universities. That's where they're originating. And it, it really uh, makes my blood boil that I've contributed substantial resources to some of those schools. And then I see them behave the way they are, closed-minded. Uh, you know, this, this uh, drift in the educational system, uh, it's almost a catechism now that they're taught instead of, uh, of being able to think for yourselves and challenge the things you're being told, you know, you're now, you're now being shunned if you have differences of opinions. And I think this is terrible. Um, and I think that that's, if something's going to 
going to end the the great country we've got it'll be that kind of uh that kind of behavior and it's all about power it's about power of some groups over other groups elitism we know what's right we'll impose it on everybody else so the whole concept that set this country up of of a divided power most people don't understand the constitution was set up to protect the people from the government it was, it was a limitation on government that was being agreed to uh, because the founders understood monarchies and despotism uh, and they didn't want any part of it. They wanted to see power divided up and spread broadly and democratically. So I guess that's, that's the concern. And, and, you know, our educational system is failing us in the sense that it isn't teaching the kids what made this country a great place to live in and grow in. Uh, and that, that I think is, is really sad. You know, as all of our institutions crumble under the onslaught, the Boy Scouts, right? The Catholic Church, uh, all of our institutions, uh, traditional institutions, marriage, for God's sakes, the family. We now have, you know, BLM uh, openly espousing the end of the, the, uh, the family unit as an organization of society. I mean, it's great to have a debate about it, but when you start seeing it imposed, um, you know, are we gonna have a meritocracy in this country uh, or are we basically uh, not, you know? So, so that's kind of me on, on that subject. I can go forever on it. And I've tried to stay out of politics as much as I possibly can for most of my life, because uh, I find it very frustrating. But, uh, but it, it is a cause of concern. And, uh, you know, otherwise, you know, is do I think the equity market's overvalued? Only if you think interest rates are going up. <laughs> you know, it's one of those, circular. Right. Well, John, um, you know, we, we were yearning to be captivated and you certainly didn't disappoint with your unique insights. So I wanted to thank you uh, for taking the time uh, and happy early birthday to you. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Master Speaker Series podcast produced by Evoke Advisors. You may email us with questions or recommended guest speakers at info at evokeadvisors.com. Please subscribe to this podcast to ensure you don't miss future episodes. And don't forget to forward today's conversation to others you think would enjoy listening. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Evoke Advisors, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits. And listeners are reminded that securities trading, commodity trading, and alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors.